I think it's pretty safe for me to assume that all of us have seen human suffering that we don't understand. We've seen sicknesses and diseases. We have things that are terrible that we don't understand. And so often when that happens, I hear these words, I've said these words, it, it, it's kind of almost a natural response where we say something like, why does God allow human suffering like this? Or we may add a couple more words to it. Why does a loving God allow human suffering like this? There's times that I've felt that way. Times I've, if not said those words out loud, I've certainly thought them. But I know in my head that when I do that, or when we do that, we're blaming God for something he didn't do. You know, John 10.10, which is a verse that this church lives with, you know, it tells us in that scripture that the thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. The thief is the devil. That's his ambition in every one of our lives. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy anything and everything that he possibly can. And the, but the verse goes on that says that Jesus said, I have come to give life and to give it abundantly. You know, if we could just keep that in the forefront of our mind when these things are happening that causes us to ask these questions where we actually, in one way or another, are trying to blame God for something he hasn't done. I think a better question that we could replace it with instead of saying, why does God allow human suffering, would be to ask this question. What has God done about human suffering? What has he done about human suffering? And the answer to that question, if we really comprehend it in our head but in our heart, what he's done about human suffering, it will change your life. It will change all of our lives. It will change a church. It will change the whole Christian community when we begin to understand that. We're going to look at the answer this morning. I want to just mention a couple of uh, resources that I've used. I mentioned this the last two years when I've shared different versions of this same message. One is a book by Dr. Sandy Kirk, and it's called Undone by the Revelation of the Lamb. And another one isn't a book, it's a sermon Many of you have heard of Jonathan Edwards. He preached some powerful sermons. Probably one of his most famous was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But he also wrote, had a sermon, a long sermon, that was called The Agony of Christ. A number of the things that I'm going to be uh, quoting come from one of those two resources. I want to tell you that up front so I don't have to re- say it over and over again. So I want us to go back in time. Before creation had even occurred, before God had created anything, before he had created the earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, before he had breathed life into Adam, going way back into what we don't know much about, somewhere back in eternity's time, God saw and knew the horrors of what was coming because of sin, before he ever created anything. He understood and knew that there were going to be men like Stalin and Lenin and Idi Amin and Saddam Hussein and Adolf Hitler. He knew those atrocities were going to be coming because of sin. Remember, he created an absolutely perfect environment. He put Adam and Eve in this perfect environment. 
no sin, no sickness, no disease, no death, nothing evil. And sin came and destroyed all of that, changed all of that. He saw the damage before it ever began to occur of what things like drugs and alcohol and divorce and rape and murder were going to do to human beings, the suffering that was going to come. He knew the the people that were going to suffer, innocent people that were going to suffer because of consequences of bad choices other people made. He knew all of that. Just imagine this. He knew all of that before he ever created the earth, somewhere back in eternity. He understood that not only when Adam and Eve sinned, all of his creation suffered. He knew ahead of time that the earth, as it continued to age because of sin, there was going to be an increase of volcanoes and earthquakes and tsunamis and famines, floods. There were going to be all these disasters that we see, and there's so much loss of life, so much suffering. We, have, we see it so much even more clearly these days because of the internet, because of the communication that we have. We see it everywhere, and it breaks your heart, or it should. And we often wonder, how can a loving God allow these kinds of things to take place? Human suffering. But what has he done about it is the key. What has God done about human suffering? And here's the answer, and then we'll expound on it. In eternity past, somewhere in eternity, he asked Jesus to become the Lamb of God. That sounds so simple because we think simply about the cross. There's so much more to the cross than what we picture in our minds. The meaning's been so lost in so many ways. You know, we oftentimes you know, hear the phrase, let's study the deeper things of the Word of God. And I like to study those deeper things, whatever they are. But there is nothing deeper than the cross. There is nothing in the word of God deeper than the cross of Calvary, the atonement, the propitiation that he was, the one that took the wrath that we deserved. You know, the wrath of God was going to be poured out on sin. He had declared it. And as his justice, he had to do it. So the wrath of God is going to be poured out. And Jesus just didn't deflect it from us, some, like some sort of shield, a super shield or something. He absorbed the wrath of God. He took on the fullness of God's wrath for us. It's amazing if we understand that and think about that when we think of the cross. Sadly, much of humanity misses this altogether. A couple of scriptures First one's in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the message of the cross is foolishness, absurd and illogical to those who are perishing and spiritually dead because they reject it. But to us who are being saved by God's grace, it is the manifestation of the power of God. 2,000 years ago when the scriptures were inspired and this was written down, they knew how many people were going to reject this as foolishness. All of the things that we talk about as Christians or should talk about as Christians when we talk about the cross, the world will look at you and go, what are you talking about? That's foolish. It makes no sense. 
And it does not make sense. In 1 Corinthians 1.27, it says, But God has selected for his purpose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, revealing their ignorance. And God has selected for his purpose the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, revealing their frailty. The cross. And my goal is today when we look at this and we begin to understand the depths of the cross, the depths of what Jesus did for us, it should change our hearts. This has got to go beyond any intellectual understanding. And as horrible as what we read about in terms of what was done to Jesus by man, and it was horrible, it was nothing compared to what he endured on that cross from another source. So let's go back to that Passover supper. Jesus and his disciples have just eaten the meal. He's, he's told them, basically, what was going to happen, but they still didn't quite understand it. So they walked out of the city through one of the city gates. They crossed the little Kidron River, and they started going up the Mount of Olives. And they went past and to the Garden of Gethsemane. And in the Garden of Gethsemane is what I'm going to focus on this morning. Imagine, if you could, that you were with those 12 disciples, And not only were you with the twelve, you were with the three, James and John and Peter, who Jesus said, you three, come with me. We're going to go a little further, and I'm going to pray. And I want you there with me, to watch with me. Hopefully pray with me. And Jesus says these words, and these words, these words had to make no sense to the disciples. Jesus has been the rock. He has been unflappable. He has been chased out of cities. He's been threatened. He's been attacked. He's been questioned, hoping he'd mess up. He's been attacked from the religious leaders almost from day one. And he's been unflappable. Nothing bothered this man, Jesus. But when he gets those three disciples and you and me in there with him, he says these words, in Matthew 26, 38, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here with me. Keep watch with me. My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. I don't believe there's anything like that that the disciples had heard from Jesus before. What in the world could be causing Jesus to feel so deeply grieved to the point of death? And we might even just think of that as a phrase to make a point, but I believe he was deeply grieved to the point of death. It was killing him, what he was seeing. And they see Jesus. Can you imagine if you were there with those three and you see Jesus with big drops of blood? The word in the Greek is thrombos, meaning a clotted chunk. It wasn't like a little drip of blood. He was sweating through his skin. His blood was being forced out through his skin, coagulating in the cold night air and dropping to the ground. Grieved until almost the point of death. What in the world is going on? Let's go back in time again to eternity that place before creation. Because I think to understand 
we need to understand what took place, even though we weren't there. No one was. It was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who had been in fellowship for eternity. And we're going to read a few scriptures to you. And in this, I believe you'll see something that we're going to just refer to as an eternal covenant. A covenant between two people, two sides. And I believe this is a covenant that is being made between God the Father and God the Son. Before we were ever created, before the earth was created. It says this in Hebrews 13, verse 20. Now may the God of peace, who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, and ratified an eternal covenant with his blood. An eternal covenant, one that goes back into eternity, ratified, fulfilled by the blood of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 2, 7. No, the wisdom we speak of is a mystery of God. His plan was that that was previously hidden, even though he made it for our ultimate glory, before the world began. But the rulers of this world have not understood it. If they had, they would not have crucified our glorious Lord. Now, I believe it probably means the religious leaders of the day. But in my mind, as I've been going through this all week, I keep thinking that the leaders of this world, if the prince of the earth, if Satan would have realized what he was doing, how he was truly being a pawn in the hand of God to bring about his desired plan, his perfect plan. I believe that Satan had no idea what God had in mind, or he'd have never crucified Christ because it led to his ultimate destruction. 1 Peter 1, 18, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver, gold, and from your futile way of life, that you inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. The Lamb of God, Jesus as the Lamb, was foreknown before the foundations of the world. This whole plan was in place before God created anything here. Amazing. And he still did it. 2 Timothy 1.9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Jonathan Denwards, in his sermon, The Agony of Christ, said these words, Some things were done before the world was created, yes, from eternity. The persons of the Trinity were, as it were, confederated in a design and covenant of redemption. In this covenant, the Father had appointed the Son, and the Son had undertaken the work, and all things to be accomplished were stipulated and agreed upon. The eternal covenant. Let's go back to the garden and get a picture as you look at the different Gospels of the different words that came out of Jesus' mouth. Some of the words we're familiar with because we hear them during our Easter season. The one I mentioned in Matthew 26, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. In Luke twenty two forty four, and being in agony, he was praying fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. 
the agony was so intense. Imagine, blood was being forced out from his capillaries, out through his skin. Agony. Mark 14. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. In verse 36, he's crying out, Abba, Father. It's like, Father, Father. An intimate cry from the Son. Father, Father. All things, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but you, what you will. A few years ago, when I first was reading these things, I didn't have this understanding that I'm sharing with you today. I just assumed the agony was about what was going to happen in the next 24 hours. He was going to be betrayed, arrested, falsely accused, Mickey Mouse trials, ultimately beaten to a bloody pulp, a crown of thorns pressed down on his head. He was going to be nailed to a cross after he'd been scourged to almost the point of death. That's what I thought. But I don't believe that. Why such agony was the question. Why was he in such agony? I believe his prayer at the end of verse 36 in Mark 14 gives us a clue. Actually, it gives us the answer, but not in the fullness of the depth that we might like. What was his closing words of that prayer? What was it that was causing the agony? He says, Father, anything is possible for you. Please take this cup from me. What was the cup? What was so horrible about the cup that Jesus is sweating blood, that he's in agony, his sorrow and grief almost to the point of death? What was in the cup? If you're like me and and many people I've talked to, you pictured what I pictured, the shame and the humiliation that he was going to have to endure being betrayed by one of his disciples, being beaten and arrested, falsely accused, spit upon, crown of thorns pushed down on your head so the thorns puncture your skin and you're bleeding from your head, beating all, beaten all over your body by the scourging of that whip with the, the lamb's bones on the end of it just ripping away your flesh, having to carry your cross when you haven't got any strength left to the outside of the city, and then laying down on a piece of wood and being nailed to it through your hands and feet, eventually having a spear thrust in your side, and finally laid on a cold slab of rock in a grave. Is that the cup? I don't think so. For a number of reasons. One, there have been many martyrs for Christ. There have been many Christians who were nailed to a cross. There have been many Christians who have had their heads cut off and decapitated because they wouldn't deny Christ. There have been many Christians who have been burned in the fire of the stake because they wouldn't deny Christ. There have been many Christians locked in prison, beaten and flogged, separated from family because they wouldn't deny Christ. 
because their faith in the Father was that strong, they would not deny Christ. Are we supposed to believe that somehow the Son of God, Jesus, didn't have as much faith and confidence in God as those people? Not for a second. Not for a second. There had to be something more in that cup to understand the cup. In the Old Testament, and we'll get to the New Testament, when this word was used and the cup of God was referenced, metaphorically, it was almost always, not every time, but almost always, a cup representing the wrath of God to be poured out in judgment upon sin. Psalm 75, verse 8, In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine, mixed with spices, foaming wine, bubbling over the wrath of God. It gets clear in Ezra 23:33. It's referred to as the cup of whore, a cup of desolation. These prophets are prophesying, this is what's going to happen for those who don't believe. Those who don't get right with God, people. He's saying, people, he's going to pour out this cup of whore and desolation. Jeremiah 25, 15, this cup is filled with the wine of his wrath, foaming over his wrath. His hatred towards sin, it's there. He's always hated sin and always loved the sinner. The cup, in Isaiah 51, 17, and in verse 22, the cup that made you stagger and almost knocked you over. It sent you reeling in some translations. The cup, the goblet, the cup of my wrath. In verses 4 and 5 of Isaiah 53, section of Scripture we're probably familiar with also. It says, when we consider him stricken by God, stricken by God, a lot of times we just think, well, God allowed them to beat him. No, I believe he was stricken by God. I believe he was smitten by God. And I'll show you why in just a few moments. But I believe he endured something that was so much more horrible than the physical punishment that we attach to the crucifixion than we can possibly imagine. But I believe God wants us to understand because it's the greatest demonstration of his love for us that you can possibly imagine. He loves us so much that what I'm talking about took place for us. The cup of his wrath. In Revelation, we get a clear description given to us by an angel in heaven for all who reject God. It says they will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night. In Revelation 16, 19, the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. Metaphorically, the picture is crystal clear. The cup, the Father's cup, the cup of his wrath, it was of of all the wrath of God towards all sin and mankind forever was condensed in this cup that Jesus says, I'm supposed to drink it. You may remember when he was arrested in the garden after Judas had betrayed him. Good old Peter took out his sword and lopped off a guy's ear. What did Jesus say? He says to him, and this is in John 18, 11. He says, Peter, 
put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Jesus knew there was a cup coming. When he left that fellowship, dinner with his disciples, and went to the garden of Gethsemane, he knew it was coming. I believe that the, the cup that Jesus is talking about here and praying about here is not a cup filled with his death, his arrest, his crucifixion. It's a cup that is filled with the judgment of sin. The judgment that Jesus didn't deserve. The judgment we deserved because of our sin. It's if, if you look at Revelation 14, it's if, as if all the torment of hell, the full fury of hell is put in that cup. And Jesus is telling us, I'm going to drink it. And as he's looking into the cup and seeing the horrors of the cup, his soul is anguished and the agony is so intense. Unto death, blood is coming through his skin as he looks into the cup. And I believe he looked into the cup. I believe the Father allowed him to look into the cup. Here's the reason I believe that. Jesus was going to be dying on a cross, crucified as a man. He was going to suffer as a man. And to do this willingly, he would have to know, I believe he would have to know everything that was coming. It wasn't like, oh, tricked you, Jesus. It's worse than I said. No way. I believe Jesus looked into that cup. God, the Father, gave him a picture of what was coming and what metaphorically is called this cup of his wrath. And he knew what was coming. He saw what was coming. And it is what drove him into agony beyond what we can imagine. This is what God has done about human suffering. It's not, God, why do you allow it? It's, God, thank you for what you've done for human suffering. It will change the way we think and live. Yeah, it's still going to be hard. There's still going to be trials and tests. We're going to still see things that are not fair in our natural mind in any way, shape, or form. We're going to see the innocent suffer. We may suffer innocently. But it's what he's done for us. We see things in such a short window of time. Everything we see, we put with our natural mind, it's all temporal. It's just temporary. You know, some of you may live to be 120 years old. But in the timeline of eternity, it's a pinpoint at most. God sees the eternal picture. That's why he established an eternal covenant before he created anything. He wants fellowship with us. He created us for fellowship. He wants us to glorify him. We were created to bring him glory. And he knew ahead of time all the things that were going to go wrong. But he already had a plan. And in Calvary, the plan unfolds. But I don't believe that's all he saw in the cup. I don't believe that's all the Father saw in the cup. I believe what the Father saw in the cup was you and me and all the people he had created. I believe what Jesus saw in the cup was you and me. And he knew why he was going to drink the cup. 
He was drinking it for you and me. He was drinking this cup of God's wrath for his bride, the church. So when he looked in the cup, all of the agony, all of the fear, all of the sorrow, all of the horror of what was in the cup was washed away by the love of Christ. That's how much he loves us. He knew what was coming. The torments of hell. I don't believe Jesus descended into hell and had to wrestle with the devil. I think Bob's been dealing with some of this stuff in class. I believe he suffered the penalty of hell while he was hung on a cross before he ever died. And when he said those wonderful, wonderful, wonderful words, it is finished, it was finished. The wrath that you and I deserve wasn't deflected. He just didn't put a little shield around us protecting us from it. He took all the wrath that was for you and me, and he absorbed it. Suffered way more intensely than a nail being driven in your hand. The wrath of God. Uh, In the book that I mentioned by Dr. Kirk, she's a really interesting writer, colorful writer. And I remember one phrase where she says, it was if... As Jesus hung on the cross, he could look up and he just saw wave after wave after wave of the wrath of God coming up on him. And finally, he said, it is finished. And he gave up the ghost and died for us. John Piper, pastor, wrote these words. God sent his son to be the wrath, absorbing propitiation for all of us. As our substitute, Jesus didn't just cancel the wrath, he absorbs it. The propitiation, there's a word that we don't use much. Jesus was the propitiation for us in this covenant of redemption. And a propitiation is a sacrifice to avert the wrath. He took our stuff. He went in our place. Jesus was a propitiation for me and for you. And for all mankind, if they accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But if they don't, and if you don't, the horrors that cause such agony in Christ are going to be our ultimate destination and our future forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Not because God wants to punish anyone. He sent his son to die so no one would have to suffer and die. That kind of death. The word of God says he wishes that none, he desires that none would perish. But yet, we all know, many reject the truth. What an amazing love has been demonstrated for us by the cup. Now there are those, when they hear that story, and if they believe it, might have a question that I understand. What kind of father would do this to his son? What kind of father is this heartless God who allowed his son to experience all that? He must have hated him. Nothing could be further than the truth, from the truth than that. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit have been fellowshipping as one for eternity's sake. When Jesus left heaven to come to earth, it was not a promotion. 
in the sense of except for what he accomplished. He left heaven to come to earth. He and the Father were separated. And in those moments hanging on the cross, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He could not look upon all the sin that was put upon him and the wrath that was coming because it would have hurt. Can you imagine? It would have hurt so much to see. But it was love that put him there. John Piper wrote, in that very moment when God's curse rested most heavily on Jesus because of sin, the Father's love for his Son reached explosive proportions. It's hard for us to imagine, even in the natural, a father being so proud of their son. Jesus had volunteered for this. He had agreed to it in an eternal covenant eons of time ago, before anything was created. And now it's playing out. And he went to the cross willingly. A quote I've used before from John Stott, written in the book Cross of Christ. It's one that you kind of need to think about a little bit. It says, in giving his son, he was giving himself, God the Father, God the Son. In giving his son, he was giving himself. Through the person of his son, he himself bore the penalty which he had inflicted. There is neither harsh injustice, nor unprincipled love, nor some kind of Christological heresy in that. There is only unfathomable mercy. Divine love triumphed over divine wrath by divine sacrifice. What a quote. Divine love over divine laugh, wrath by a divine sacrifice. Sometimes we neglect the cross. It's become something on a wall in a church, or it's become an earrings, or it's become a necklace. It's become something we talk about on the surface, especially around Easter, Good Friday. But we don't talk about the depth of it the way we should. A lot of times we neglect talking about the cross because it's so horrifying. There was a major denomination a number of years back that these were the words from their national conference. We need to remove the blood from the Bible because it's such a horrifying picture and a bloody religion. You remove the blood from the Bible, there's nothing left. It's just a book. And the world doesn't like to look at what the blood really did. Jesus obviously dreaded the Father's cup. But something compelled him way more. Love. Love. It's amazing even what human beings will do for loving when they love someone. Sacrificing their life or anything because they love them. Jesus offered up his son. Our God offered up his son, Jesus, because he loved us. There's a scripture in Ephesians that, again, probably familiar in Ephesians 3, verse 17, where it's talking about the love of God, and Paul is praying a prayer for us. 
and he's praying prayer for us that we may understand something. And what he's praying a prayer for us to understand is this, that they may know the breadth, the length, the depth, and the height of the Father's love for us, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. The only way we can begin to understand the love is to understand what took place at the cross. That's really what we're remembering when we talk about Good Friday, when we talk about Easter, the cross, and what was accomplished on that cross. There's no doubt in my mind that as a believer, that becomes part of our belief system, our core system of believing. It will change the way we live. It will change the way we think. You get a church full of believers like that, it will change the church, and I believe it will change a community in an area. Because we will understand the kind of love that was sacrificed for us, that we would be more willing to sacrifice for others. And there's no greater love. There is no greater love than sharing the good news of the gospel with other people. No greater love. And we are called to bring glory to God And I don't think there's many things that bring more glory to God than when an unbeliever accepts the gift of salvation of what Christ did on that cross and becomes a born-again believer. That brings him glory. Galatians 6.14 says, But God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. This is love. This is the kind of love that God has for us. If you're, if you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, there's no way you can understand the kind of love that I'm talking about. A love that accepts you just as you are. A love that doesn't judge you. A love that comes with no shame, no guilt, no condemnation attached whatsoever. A love that just is freely given, pure pure love. That's what he has for every one of us. And to be the recipient of that and all the promises of the word of God, we need to make a choice. That's all we have to do is make a choice. Are we going to believe and accept the fact that we are sinners, need a savior, and that Jesus is the only savior? And then he died and took all of what we've been talking about this morning for you personally. And you accept that and surrender your life to him. Live your life for his glory. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to die as an atoning sacrifice for us. Let's close in prayer. Father, I pray that the reality of the cross would become a better part of our understanding. Holy Spirit, teach us, reveal us, reveal to us the power of the cross. Reveal to us what Christ endured for us, what he took that we should have taken. God, that we would never forget the blood of Jesus. that redeemed us from the curse, from separation from you. 
And I pray, Lord, that during this Easter season, you would draw us to times to meditate upon these realities. Give us opportunities to even share with others the significance of what the world celebrates and calls Easter. Father, we pray that our lives would glorify you as we surrender to the King of kings and Lord of lords who loves us more than anybody could ever love us. And Father, I pray all these things that you'd be glorified, your son would be glorified, and in his name I pray, amen.